We are live. Welcome, everybody, back to Actual Eye Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we are going to be covering part eight of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We have journeyed into the East. So in the last 20 minutes or so of our previous podcast, he introduces Buddha and the mindfulness revolution that we are in the midst of right now here as this influx of ancient wisdom from the East makes its way into the West now at ever-increasing rate via the Internet. And so many books, though, in the last few decades. So this interest in meditation. We're definitely... And why is that? Human Humanity is reaching for some handhold, aren't we? We're trying to regain something that we lost, perhaps. Well, yeah, and, you know, we're... I won't say completely similar, but similar enough, um, I don't know, experientially as far as... So the palace that Siddhartha was in was filled with all the having needs. And right now the palace we have constructed for ourselves is filled with the having needs. You know, you got this car and you got these things that somebody can sell to you, but that does nothing for your being needs, which is a growing function. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we have, we're out of whack, if you will, right. uh, much like a prince would be in a palace that yeah. has everything to facilitate his, his, mm-hmm. ev- all of his wants. Yes. The, the wants, like, uh, what's the old saying, you know, or the old lesson of, you know, there's wants and then needs. And once you fulfill your needs, you can work on the wants. Well, there's the, sure. yeah. there's the havings. Well, Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah. lays that out really well yeah. with that pyramid where you fulfill the baser survival needs and then you get into yeah. needs of belonging and membership yeah. in your community and then developing a family. And then once you've actualized all of these things and you've got your food, water, shelter, safety, security, and uh, relationship with your community in check, then you can work on higher level self-actualization goals. And ultimately, Maslow added self-transcendence to the peak of that pyramid before he died, but that didn't make its way into most of the textbooks, even though it's superfluous in psychological textbooks. But that self-transcendence aspect, he had been studying all his life as well. Uh, he had studied Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa and people like that that had become deeply self-actualized but then had transcended their personal fulfillment and were working on behalf of larger, uh, greater issues that involved all of humanity and all of the globe. And they were very much seeing themselves as in a sense of with one, uh, in oneness with everything and everyone around them. And they, they felt love and compassion in that way. And that's, that's what drove them. So he was very, very interested in what... Maslow termed self-transcenders, and he added that self-transcendence aspect to the hierarchy of needs pyramid before he died because of a near-death experience he had following a stroke where he actually flatlined, Mm, and he came back. And when he came back, he described the experience of being like having life and having survived death as this... He was in this constant state of basically what in Zen we term Satori. Uh, It's just this high blissful, you know, the idea of enlightened state. And he called it a high plateau, and he was there for his last few remaining years. But he did add that to his structure, to the pyramid. Well, I guess once you filled the whole whole pyramid in your life and then you find out there's something else, what is that? Mm-hmm. And Living in communion and with this great mystery. And transcendence is a process, so it's not like a fixed point, a fixed yeah. thing that you can have and hold on to. Mm-hmm. 
it's something that has to continuously yes. go anyway. So it's, you know, it's yeah, less of a point and more this. of an inversion and mm-hmm. opening up into more. But uh, yeah, yeah. Verbeke brings this up in the previous episode, uh, getting ourselves into a co-creative relation with existence and how we develop our worldview through the attunement of our existential modes and how we can get into modal confusion like the prince Siddhartha Buddha, who eventually became known as the Buddha, the awakened mm-hmm. one. Um, how he experienced life prior to that was in a state of modal confusion. And he was mistaking his having needs for being needs. This is how we can be sold things by commercials mm-hmm. so easily as they will appeal to our being needs of being in love or being uh, in a sense of belonging in our community, the sense of comfort and security. This is what commercials will appeal to a lot rather than the having needs so much because the being need is even deeper well you know like or no basically what they're doing is they're c- tricking you into thinking that having yeah, needs the, are being yeah, needs because yeah, we'll fulfill like, your being they, they can't sell you a product if it's just like hey if you have this you'll feel good for a little bit and you'll think you're cool for a little bit and, that, right. and that's it no they have to be like this is the number one thing that, yes, you know just this and you'll get all the woman yeah or you know just you know like nice car driving down the road if you have this car you'll see those scenic views and suddenly go off and do these places and go to the grand canyon and you know it's just like uh so they're appealing to our being yeah you're like yeah you know i'd love to be be adventurous and go see things i haven't done what happens is there's this void that is never quite fulfilled no matter how many sugary drinks (laughs) well you buy the s you buy the suv and it sits in your parking lot all the you always (laughs) buy the new model of every new thing but there's still that sense of needing that isn't ever quite fulfilled. And that's because we have these deeper being modes that we also require fulfillment of. So the de- development of character, Aristotle was very big on and the, the growth process of that. How mm-hmm. one comes into deep contact reliably with reality. So they were util- utilizing the term uh, ration or yeah, for rational r- mind. R- ras- yeah, and the rationality. Rationality, um, thank you. Is the to m- self-reflect and to self-correct. Yeah, I have from last conform week's notes. Conform the heart of rationality is a merger of the character and the contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went into two kinds of knowing, and the one kind of knowing is like I can tell you about something, like oh I know about that, and I can tell you. And then the other kind of knowing about something is like oh I can make that. I can mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Or the first time I, you drove a car, for yeah, instance. Yeah, I have done that. That kind of knowing. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a conforming type of knowing because you have to con- you know, conform yourself. Like, say, if you're the chair maker, you mm-hmm. conform yourself to the chair. And um, almost in a sense, you are the chair while making the chair. Your brain is literally mapping it out. Yeah. And the more detail that you gain from actually building a chair than you would from just being able to deeply describe a chair is how real it becomes in the mind and how well one can then interact with the object, say a car or a pen. Yeah, you mentioned that in earlier episodes. It becomes an extension of our bodies. Our brain maps it out and it becomes part of us. Yeah. 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 So the the distinction between, well, Buddhism shows us, and Aristotle pointed out, that there's no distinction between knowing and being. So knowing in that sense of like knowing what it feels like to drive a car. So for mm-hmm. the first time you know after you, you can only imagine yeah. beforehand. Same like with going to another country like say Mexico if you've never been. Imagine knowing everything you could about it and even imagining it as deeply as you could will not be the same as when you actually go there and visit for the first time. The feeling 
of the atmosphere, the smells, the sounds, every little tiny detail that the brain picks up, of course, is going to be fresh and new. Yeah, I guess this was called uh, conformity theory, and not mm-hmm. the conformity that we rebelled against as teenagers, but the conformity to change yourself and shape yourself to something um, or blending your mind with reality. Um, as accurately as you can, yeah. And then, because it, it, you can't just change your belief about something to be able to conform your reality to it. You've got to actually deeply experientially know it. So how do how do we develop that intimate connection between mind and reality? And well, we to he, understand how we make sense of things in this participatory yeah. relation. And he explained the 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 method in, on how we make a rational decision on something like the you know the hey that girl likes you thing, mm-hmm. and it breaks down to. First, you have to have right. well accurate primary info, but yes. the the um, information has to be accurate primarily. Like you know, oh, that girl exists, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because yeah, that girl likes doesn't exist. Um, but then uh, the environment has to be optimal, like it mm-hmm. wasn't loud. So mm-hmm. the the info. So in the case of a person, that person has to be sober, sane, conscious, and not yes, actively lying, tool. trying to lie yeah. to you. And then the environment has to be optimal. You can't; mm-hmm. it can't be too loud, too messy, too whatever. Mm-hmm. And then um, you have to have. We use others confirmation. You know? Oh, you heard that people. too? They heard, yeah, heard they heard it too? too. Okay, yeah, intersubjective agreement. And and it's I don't know. Like day to day, we tend to overthink or underthink what how that or let me let me rephrase that. We tend not to think that we're doing this while we're doing it because it's just like. You know, how often it was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, did you hear about such and such? Oh, no, I didn't. What's going on with that? And then while somebody's telling you, you're ch- checking off boxes in your head without knowing it. Mm-hmm. And some of them are like, you know, well, is the information salient? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, say if it's print, is the print deep or not? Clear, or do you bold, really trust this person? Because I think mm-hmm. trust is like a interpersonal um, interpersonal salience booster Mm because like you'll believe somebody that you trust more than the perfect stranger that information is going to stand out more for you and and we just do this naturally as well Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and you know i don't know whether that's just like an ingrained thing we naturally do or a learned thing or both it's probably a both thing it's just we've grown up with that's how you think that's how you check with people you are well uh, yeah when you're little kids like don't be a fibber and don't just believe somebody because and then the first time somebody fibs on you and then you're like what the hell and you know (laughs) like going through the process to learn that um yes oh what is and so we're really trying to find what what the world really is that mm-hmm. we're conforming mm-hmm. to so like what is what, the nature what, of reality yeah what does it as look like as we can get it yeah and yeah. you know what does it look like what uh so we conform ourselves yeah. more and more mm-hmm. effectively to it so we're reframing and reframing yeah. it's just a practice a very helpful practice in this the reframing that the shamans the meditators mm-hmm. so on and so forth mm-hmm. have utilized uh the scientific method as well yeah, forces it, us to utilize reframe 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 try it from another angle try and disprove your mm-hmm. hypothesis over and again and i guess the framing of um Get closer and aristotle closer. would be you know things are comprised of the elements earth mm-hmm. air wind and fire yep. like yep. elements attract like, like elements yes. and though it wasn't yeah. accurate it was like as far as we understand the universe now it was accurate enough to create an accurate framing of how the world works and how to conform to the world mm-hmm. and we, we can see mankind beginning well, to try and 
a lot of alchemy break things and understand things they were they were able to make amalgams and all different you know kinds of stuff pretty Mm -hmm. early on with just this conception of earth air they were already they were breaking things down and trying to understand okay how is this actually happening in a way that we can measure it as accurately as we can and so they're coming up with the most logical ideas they could for for their time uh natural motion the they had a sense that things must have an internal drive Everything moves on purpose. purpose. Yes. So there's this sense of the whole world was deeply meaningful. Everything was a beautiful order, and it was all imbued with meaning. And that's something that we lost when science and this, and the study of spirit separated. Mm-hmm. Though it was still here in Aristotle, Plato, Socrates' time. Yeah, and the overview, worldview, is a... Constantly cycling, you know, uh, system of conforming yourself to this geocentric world and that world changing according to mm-hmm. co- conforming to it, which then changes, uh, you know, the your geocentric existential view. mode, basically. You're and constantly keeps, informing this yeah. existential mode and reality is informing it and you're informing reality. And it, he used reciprocal dance. He used the terminology of agent and arena and mm-hmm. the relationship between yes. them. Yes. To kind of explain this, the, mm-hmm. the arena grows with the agent and the agent grows with the arena. Yes. And, Being able to recognize you know. what kind of arena you're in, to identify mm-hmm. the yeah. arena, and then assume the ident- correct Def- identity for that Defines, arena. the yeah. agent is defined by the arena. Yes. And the arena defines the agent. Yes. Reciprocally again, yes. yeah. Co-identification. And the agent, the point of being a more optimally tuned agent and constantly reframe into the environments to be able to be capable of pursuing the goals say the mm-hmm. basketball player on the basketball court so that agent in that arena so he knows the rules of that arena he interacts with that arena that arena informs him he informs the arena with how he mm-hmm. plays on it and uh so this is a constant refitted refitting to the environment yeah the it's the existential mode of Assuming and assigning, and assuming would be the arena, and mm-hmm. the assigning would be the agent, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's there the existential mode that we're mm-hmm. in. Is, yes, is of that assuming and assigning. Yes. Um, so, Vivek is going to tell us about how Siddhartha Gautama became modally confused from growing up in the palace, having all of his having needs, and mm. Bef- before that. Meant um, we get into world view attunement. Yes, yes, that was yes. Ger- that was Gertz, which mm-hmm. the story of Siddhartha really explains. This getting in tuned is a really good story to understand. Like, and I won't I won't spoil it for you because we get into it. But it's it's uh, just keep in mind world view attunement and tuning into the world, mm-hmm. um, which is yes, know. yes, because. As Verveke says, and I remember I wrote this part down, to create a coherent and functional worldview matters greatly to us. Yeah. It it matters so deeply to us because it's a sense of security and a sense of knowing how to act in this environment, in this time space, in this world that we are in now. So being in an optimally tuned uh, uh, mode, mm-hmm. one can, of course develop more and more new ways of unfolding and interacting with the environment so that's called worldview attunement mm-hmm. attuning. and the opposite of that is absurdity yes the sense of disconnect when 
something's out of alignment with that world attunement. Yes, so the absurd. world attunement. When and the actually, agent is out of alignment with the arena. You can hear this in music too. Like you know, if you listen to Frank Zappa, he was really good at doing this. Um, where, like, so he was a classical guy. He wanted to be a classical guy. That's that's that. Like Frank Zappa is an interesting fella. But in classical music, you know, it, it goes further than just first course, first course, and this, that, or the other. It's just building and building. He'll build up something, build up something, and then make it absurd, or build something completely freaking absurd and then break it down. And he uses music and tuning, and like, you know, if if you're a music nerd like I am, you can hear the scales that he's using and everything, and realize, well, those are kind of absurd scales because they're broken from your standard seven modes and how would you normally use your modes. And hey, here we are again, modes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's just, it's like, it just gave me a giggle because I was thinking of tuning and absurdity, and I was like, Frank Zappa is pretty freaky. Uh, Playing yeah, all the, the, over the, the absurd in that territory, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can play with the absurd too. And actually, that might be a good method of breaking down, you know, breaking outside well, of the box. Well, it's beautiful when you go into chaos Embra- and it yeah, comes em- back into embracing order. Embracing the absurdity you know? every now and again. Yeah. You know, like I do like that feeling, you know, when you're. Well, to learn how to surf comfortably when things sure. get absurd until things yeah. clarify again, and until I, you can make order of them again. That might be uh, also the realm of the, the, you know, the jester archetype, he who derives. Uh, reason and understanding and communicates it through absurdity yeah right you know it's, yeah. it's, it's funny how they you always do cartwheels you throw if things at them yeah they, yeah they would stick around for yeah. years sometimes yeah. with the king even though they're making fun of him and his entire court the whole time but yes it, it's absur- just enough to keep him honest yeah and yes absurdity is the opposite of this attuned worldview but i think it is important to hmm. be able to embrace it when it's appropriate in order to break your own framing. It's yes. like this whole path to meaning is just a series of breaking previous framings. Yeah. Like all the greats are just breaking the framing of the previous. Yeah. You could say upgrading and, you know. framing instead yeah. well, if you want, you know, it's sometimes if you want to put it in a new door, if you want to put yeah. it in a new door and make a good door, you got to break that frame and build it up. But somebody, you know, first cut the hole for the door. Right. Sometimes you have to cut the hole a little bit wider. Yeah. Uh, you but know, it's okay to yeah. reframe. You yeah. might bring in yeah. a lot of the same, yeah. You know, it's still going to look like a door frame. And sometimes it's instance. just adding yeah. on, like adding a section onto the house. It's still going to be a worldview. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just going to be upgraded. It's going to be more accurate, so it's going to be more actually comforting to the, to the uh, psychology and physiology. Yeah, and so our our scientific worldview, which so. seems to be lacking the meaning, we can understand the world in its minute details, all mm-hmm. the way down to the atoms and the quarks and all that stuff. The meta meaning relations, as yeah. he called it. Yes. Yeah. These all these different modes are in meta meaning relations, and we've kind of delved into the absurdity with the over scientific, in my opinion. Um, because like now we can describe you know everything in the physical universe so much, and even a lot of the things in the mental end of things, but it still doesn't give us meaning. And if your overview worldview is supposed to drive you know help drive your virtual machine. Mm-hmm. to create more meaning and more wisdom that's quite absurd that's interesting that we you are know. tuned that way isn't it so maybe that's the issue a lot of the issues we're having you know, yeah socially and uh um you know socially politically and all otherwise like why things are getting so crazy is because it is absurd to know so much about how the world works and how we work really and still not know about you it's know, a like, lot to have any meaning to it once yeah, it's so much information, I, and it's it feels really helpful to take a step back and just kind of take a telescopic view of things sometimes. Say, okay, this is where we're at. We've gotten here really fast. 
mm-hmm. our cultures intermeshing and intermingling <clears throat> at an exponentially increasing rate over the last couple few hundred years now in the last just 20 years of the five internet. years i mean we, i know it's yeah, yeah, everything's more high depth so you're getting... but uh yeah well you you were you're getting to this or i felt like you were kind of going along this uh into this line a little earlier but um we lost something yeah and that's and we're the looking nomological yeah. order these like certain yes. laws that we the ways of co-creating with our environment yeah. are nom- is nomological order. Yeah, you know, it's, I, a, it's a cosmos is the way that it used to previously be uh, interacted with. Yeah, and it's a cosmos we, that weren't. And we with. should be rebuilding our own like set of laws, and and not laws like do this, don't do that, but laws of like this is what it is, like the law of gravity. Gravity is the law of the speed mm-hmm. of light. It mm-hmm. is because we can't say it isn't. Yeah. Right, so right, right. we need to start finding those things that are that we can't say that that we can't say that they aren't. Yeah. That in my mind, well, like that's love. what makes a law. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. As, yeah. as far as like an orientation, mm-hmm. like how does one find a stable ground upon which to stand in a time like this? I think the orientation of being genuinely, unconditionally mm-hmm. loving as we can possibly be, and continually cultivating that capacity, that helps a lot. That takes a lot of the load off, and it helps you be more willing to put yourself in other people's shoes see from other perspectives continually reframing because ultimately what we're looking for when our heart is oriented this way is what's good for one and all and so that's you know that's a much more widely considerate and widely perspectival way of in- interacting with reality yeah it really tunes you up it really yeah it tunes you in it's and that attuned worldview and so, allows us to generate increasingly adaptive existential modes so that we can better actuate that agent and arena relationship mm-hmm. over and over again. Which brings yeah. us to the mindfulness revolution yes. that happened in India. Yes. And I've got a little note here that I want to bring up. Um, so when we talk about enlightenment, mm-hmm. one of the deep core reasons for it or or, or how it exists it's it's a defensive thing enlightenment it, it it defends our existence as as you like as the more enlightened you become the less negatively affected by say the absurdities the sure. other thing like you know that being that peace thing you know i'm sure that's protective it, yeah so yeah. it's 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 more of the shield end of our logical system than the sword end of our logical system. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking yeah. at it because there is the sword of enlightenment mm-hmm. that as cuts well, through. That cuts through. Yeah, well, it's it's got a component of both. Yeah. But as far as for the like necessity of it for the survival of the human species, I think mm-hmm. is is defensive because it arms us against being taken advantage of, lied to, um, or lying to ourselves and confusing our having needs mm-hmm. with our being needs as well. well. I can I can see it not being a repulsive and reactive approach to love and like the Gandhi, Martin Luther Mm -hmm. King, nonviolence. And a lot of times, yeah, actually people who are enlightened tend to be defenders. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're not just hermits on the hill, right? Which hermits on the hill serve their purpose. They're, you know, a place where you go that you can Mm -hmm. gain or I don't know, uh, gain some, uh, some mechanisms for your modes. Right. If you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to put it. I don't have the words. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so the story of uh, 
the story of old good old Sid and his palace uh, more mm-hmm. and not just you know so we get to the axial revolution yeah. in India yes yeah. yes old Sid in the palace and I think you know he he sums it up too much so like and we didn't go or he sums it up well enough and we didn't go very far into it last week so you know enlightenment also allows us to adapt so it's dealing with the threats of life mm-hmm. how enlightenment can help us deal with the threats of life better so it's helping you be more adaptive mm-hmm. and react and responsive rather than reactive to the environment so yes i guess it encompasses that whole spectrum from offensive to defensive mm-hmm. to like a neutral flow where one is neither or but both and at the same time yeah so socrates embodied the west's axial revolution we could say siddhartha Gautama embodies the east as it comes through india and so this is the great transition the psychotechnology of meditation is being developed so we have uh, Buddha, um, the oracle figure mm-hmm. in this story, because this is another myth story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different versions of the mm-hmm. Buddha coming to enlightenment story. Mm-hmm. And in one of the more popular ones, I guess, that Verveke is referring to, there's this moment where the king is asked, would you rather your son be a great king or religious figure and was that was that the question uh, what he wanted i believe him to be a great king yeah, opposed to a, opposed to a religious figure and well oh, that's right okay so the oracle said he's either going to be mm-hmm. there it is yeah Brand cells are catching up he's either so your son is either going to be a great king or a um, incredible religious figure yeah and he of course wants him to be a king and so myths as Verveke describes to us, are actually ways for us. They're not just fanciful stories with like nice, useful metaphors for life or allegories. They are that, but they're also ways to help us orient as a species, as collectives, to perennial patterns, recurring mm-hmm. patterns throughout history, these existential crises that humanity can face. It's almost like an, an, at any time. an encoding mechanism through time, mm-hmm. you know, like to encode values um, yes, virtues values, wisdom wisdom mm-hmm. um in a way that's all a lot e- a lot easier to gain insight from because if they just like say they gave you raw data you wouldn't know what to do with it so you have to display it in a way that we can understand mm-hmm. yeah and myths See, and legends are that way because we can like. understand the story even mm-hmm. if we don't intellectually understand it, it pulls us into the story and we're understanding it as being in the story yes yes um so you are the hero in the story when you read a story about a hero mm-hmm. or you know you are because you're reading and you're putting yourself There's into the book different archetypal in, modes that yeah that you will go into automatically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the palace represents having needs the needs that are being met by categorical control of different categories of things uh, be they hunger or any other kind of need for survival or just comfort. Um, it's an I-it relation. Yes, and I And we utilize our intelligence I have to problem it. solve with it. Yes. Then there's the being mode, relating expressively, so artistically, for instance, uh, love relations, um, processes of reciprocal realization. Mm-hmm. Which is a growing function. Mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, yes. the I thou, I believe mm-hmm. is he used. So it's um, like mm-hmm. basically me and you opposed to me and it. 
And interestingly enough, we have that relationship with our pets, even though, oh, I love my pet like it's my own kid. Well, at the end of the day, it's your cat. They're not your cat. Yeah. It's your cat. Yeah. Yeah. I, we can notice when we let things go for our pets that we wouldn't necessarily do with a human. But people will sometimes well, do that to I, I think, too. I think, I think pets may be, and this is not for everybody, but I think pets may be a good example of replacing a being need with a having need. Yeah. Well, some people will be appalled by that idea, too, of treating your pet less than a family member. They want yeah. to treat it as a family member. Yeah. They're very attuned. And, well, you know, yeah. it, in my opinion, yeah. like, you know, pets, yes, they, they are a member of the family, but mm-hmm. it is still a possessed thing. You possess your pet. Mm-hmm. And I've had friend like nature friends, you know, and that's a different relationship. Like when you see the same crows that go on the same walk with you every day, and they notice you, and you notice them, the deer that are constant, like the matriarch there. We know each other almost on a first name basis. Like I know the whole family <laughs> all the way down the line. There's a lot They're of not my pets. See, they deer. are not my pets. But that cat, mm-hmm. that freaking cat, uh, yeah, the the neighbor's cat. Uh, it's uh, well, there's many of them. But <laughs> yeah, so it, it, I, it was just a little interesting. No, it's funny about, though. Myths often have animals. Well, well, look in the palace. You have the lions and the exotic animals, and you have these things. But it's a property value more than a relationship value. Hmm. Now, occasionally, yes, you will bond you know, strongly. There's stories. Oh of yeah, sure. We can change that. Pets. We can recognize that we're relating that way with yeah. some with the living being with a having mode yeah. instead of a being mode and realize that we're yeah. separating ourselves from a fuller experience and mm-hmm. allowing it to have a fuller experience of life as well. And so sometimes being you know, mode is meant by becoming yeah. maturation, uh, the growth of virtue, our developmental needs, um, realization. It's, and it's not categorical and it can be reciprocal. So you can grow deeper and deeper in love with somebody. You can grow in wisdom and fellowship with other people discussing, mm. you know, philosophy. And there can be reciprocal realization. So the I-thou relationship, this utilizes reason more than intellectual problem solving. And it it's meaning making. It's all about making more meaning. So art is a big part of this as well. And we, so we get mixed up. We have modal confusion, which causes deep existential conflict. And uh, we can see how this serves market interests and how commercials appeal to the what's, what's, being mode what's by the, tricking uh, us into, trying to trick us into thinking that getting something, having something is going to fulfill these deeper being desires. What's the academic term? Making love and things like that. Bullshit. It allows yes. us to find the bullshit. It's salient, even though we know it's not true. <laughs> but it's super yeah. salient. Yeah. And it's salient well, to yeah, us in a lizard brain like yeah. kind of way. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. No, no, when I watch a commercial about food and that food looks good, I get hungry, but I know mm-hmm. it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I know that I know that whopper that you see on the screen isn't what you're getting. Oh, you even have memories yeah. of that rush of positive feeling chemicals you get when that perfect amount of sugar and salt is combined Mm. in that big mac or whatever it is yeah yeah these things are traps but (laughs) so yeah i think that catches us up and vervek is going to outline that a little bit as well here as we get in to this next episode so thank you guys so much for tuning in make sure you like and subscribe and help us help this show reach more people
Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. <clears throat> so last time we took a look at uh, the second half of Aristotle and his further developments of the Axial Age's understanding of meaning and wisdom. And we took a look more at the what you might call the world side of things. And we took a look at uh, uh, Aristotle's worldview, the, the two components, his conformity theory, which is an uh, important alternative understanding of knowledge. It's a contact epistemology, intimate uh, knowing and being uh, with something, and uh, how plausible that uh, contact epistemology actually is. And then we also looked at a plausible, turned out to be false, but a plausible model of the world that is um, very consonant and consistent with that conformity uh, theory. This is a world, a geocentric world that is moved by natural motion. It's a cosmos. And then we use that to discuss how the theory of the world and the theory of how we know the world and be within the world are intimately, uh, mutual, intimately connected and mutually supporting. And you get worldview attunement uh, and how that creates existential modes in which uh, we are co-identifying the agent and the arena and creating the meta-meaning the, 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 the relationship that makes all individual acts and events and situations and places meaningful for us. And how important that consonance is between our existential mode and our intellectual understanding and why Aristotle uh, is so prominent because of his capacity to create a worldview that lasts for a millennium uh, and being uh, so uh, well attuned a worldview. We then paused uh, from our discussion of the Axial Age in Greece and we moved to the Axial Age in India for the explicit purpose of trying to discuss uh, the impact uh, of the mindfulness revolution and the part of the thesis of the series is the mindfulness revolution is a response to uh, the meaning crisis in the West and the growing confluence between Buddhism and cognitive science is an attempt to address and provide solutions to the meaning crisis in the West. We started by looking at the figure who epitomizes uh, the axial revolution within ancient India and that's Tardagatama. And we began by looking at his myth his mythological uh, biography, if you want to put it that way, and I remind you again how I am using the word myth. And we began by taking a look at his early life within the palace. We st stepped aside and examined the palace as a mythological representation of a particular existential mode. We talked about two different existential modes following the work of Fromm. It's also a convergent of work from Buber and... Uh, uh, other uh, important thinkers, Stephen Batchelor is going to make use of this distinction, etc. Fromm talks about uh, two modes, two existential modes, the having mode that's organized around meeting our having needs in which we perce perceive the world categorically, we want to manipulate it and solve our problems and control it, and the being mode which is organized around our being needs, these are needs that are met by becoming something mature, virtuous, uh, love. And we then talked about the possibilities of modal confusion, being locked in the having mode and trying to meet your being needs within the having mode. So trying to uh, meet your need for maturity by 
having a car or meeting your need for being in love by having lots of sex. And we talked about uh, the fact uh, that you can get, in, get you can become enmeshed in modal confusion and how that becomes a vicious cycle because as your being needs are frustrated, you pursue evermore the misframed projects that the modal confusion is giving you. You try more and more to have things as opposed to more and more become what you need to become. And then I suggested to you that being in the palace is a mythological representation of this kind of modal confusion in which we are stuck in the having mode. And of course, this also had one important cultural point, and I did say at the beginning that we would talk about, the, we would develop a way of talking about the connections between the meaning crisis and other crises we are facing. So issues about uh, a market economy and a commodification of everything and everyone, by inducing modal confusion, it is possible to sell you more. And as, as your identity becomes more and more a political and economic thing and commodity that should be categorically understood and manipulated, the more and more I can sell you things and sell you ideas and manipulate you accordingly. So this has uh, important ramifications for us now. That's why it's a myth. Because it has important ramifications for us right now. But, as I mentioned, Siddhartha does not stay in the palace. He's, his curiosity becomes too great. And there are all kinds of variations on this story. <clears throat> and I don't think there is an absolute canonical way of saying it. But he decides to leave the palace. He goes out in his chariot with his charioteer Chandra. And they're traveling around. And he sees a sick person. And he's distressed. What's wrong with that person? What the, he's, and Chandra says, my lord, he, he's, he's, he's sick. <clears throat> and Siddhartha said, well, what did he do to cause that? And it's like, nothing. It's just, it, it happens to everybody. Everybody gets sick at some point. It's just part of the way of things. <clears throat> You can see this is like, this is the axial awakening, right? Remember, the axial revolution is awakening about what's actually going on in the suffering in the world. And so Siddhartha is like very distressed. It's like, what? But you, I could get sick too? And Chandra said, well, of course, of course. I mean, part of the conceit of the myth is that Chandra is sort of oblivious to Siddhartha's whole history, which is, of course, unbelievable. But it's, that's the point of a myth to get you to realize things, not to convince you about historical truths. So Siddhartha is distressed, and he says, take me away from here. I don't want, I don't want to see this anymore. And so they drive, they drive along, and right, they meet an old person. And Siddhartha says, stop, stop. Is, is that person sick as well? No, my lord, he, he's not sick. He's old. Old? What do you mean? Well, this happens to everyone through the passage of time. You mean he didn't do anything in particular? No, it, it wasn't any, it's not his fault. He just, his, he's become old. And now Siddhartha's like, no, okay, let's go back to the palace. This is really bad. So they're making their way back to the palace. He's trying to return to that, right, that self-enclosure of the pure having mode. 
But you know, that's the thing about confusion. Once it starts to be dissipated, you can't return to it. So he's trying to return, and of course, he meets a funeral procession. There's a corpse. And Siddhartha said, is, 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 he, is, what, is, that, is that person sick? Are they old? So no, that person's dead. They're dead. They're not alive anymore. What? But why? Well, my Lord, it happens to everybody. Now, do you see what's happened here? The having mode has been completely undermined. It's been completely undermined. And Siddhartha is experiencing an existential crisis because this is happening at the level of his existential mode. That's what it means when we talk about an existential crisis. So he's like, get me back to the palace absolutely now. And so now there's a mad dash. And as he's trying to get back to the palace and trying to enfold himself back into that world, he meets one more thing, one more person actually. He meets a mendicant. He meets one of these people that has given up the having mode. They were called renouncers because they have renounced the world of the palace, of luxury. And there's a deep peace in this man's eyes. And the contrast, right? And think, think, about, think about how, again, this is not just an, a matter of belief. This is a matter, this is happening in his entire being. His entire being is resonating with this distress because it's the whole way in Right, in which he is coupled to the world that has been suddenly thrown into confusion. There's all of this happening, this deep... Dist- and the contrast with the peace that he sees in the man's eyes. And, he's, and, he, and he turns to Chandra and says, Who is this? And Chandra said, It's a mendicant. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a wandering person. And that person, of course, represents is the introduction, not the intellectual introduction, but the direct confrontation with the being mode. This is a person who has realized peace. And Siddhartha feels that contrast poignantly, powerfully, painfully. So he returns to the palace with these four signs burning in him. The illness, the old age, the death, but also this representative of the being mode, somebody who has cultivated wisdom and peace, found some kind of deep connectedness that is untouched by the vicissitudes of our mortality. But of course, Siddhartha cannot find the peace he wants. He cannot get back to the palace. Look, the, think about the double senses of this word. Because it's really pertinent here. Disillusionment. When we describe somebody as disillusioned, we're usually talking about a, a state in which they are perhaps moving towards despair. They're sad. They've experienced loss. It's a negative state. But notice at the heart of it is the loss of illusion. This is an axial age thing. He is losing the illusion 
of modal confusion, and he's, he's losing that sense of belonging that he had when he was in the palace. He doesn't belong there anymore. He tries. He tries to make it work. We're going to talk about this later. We're going to talk about this. Why is it after people have these kinds of awakening experiences, they feel that they need to transform their whole lives, that they can't go back, that there's something irreversible about it? This is something we're going to directly talk about. In fact, can we, can we get a cognitive scientific purchase on that? But he can't go back. The disillusionment is too real. So he decides to leave. And this, this, this is not an easy choice. He has a wife, he has a child. And we, we may, in fact, even ethically criticize him. I mean, he's abandoning his son, he's abandoning his wife. But there's a sense here that, and, and of course we should make moral reflection, we should make moral arguments. Um, but what the myth is saying is the moral life sits upon something deeper. That carrying out your moral responsibilities, well, important, of course, can ultimately be rendered meaningless if you've lost meaning. Morality sits on, depends upon your life being meaningful. And we're going to talk about this a lot later when we talk about the work of Susan Wolfe and others. The meaning in life and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the psychological work about this right now. Meaning in life is different from, and I would argue that this myth says, is deeper than simply leading a moral existence. You see, there's something more to wisdom than just morality. See, virtue is also about right, that, that, that meaningfulness, that meta-meaning. It's ultimately about being plugged into the cultivation of wisdom, not just doing what is morally correct. So, Siddhartha leaves the palace, he cuts his hair, leaves the palace, goes into the forest, and he decides to follow the path of the renouncers. All right, we're back, we're back. Yes. Okay, so let's just catch up real fast here. He's just introduced us to old Sid, Siddhartha Gautama, and his experience in the palace, having all of his needs met. And then he goes out for travel one day, and he's encountering these states of being that he's never seen. And he's wondering, what is all of this? So he's asking about the old, or yeah, the, the, the sick first person. First he sees a sick person, he's just like, what is this? It, that's, that they're sick? What is sick? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And um, then it goes on, and then this old age. And he's like, what is that? Yeah, and then uh, there's is somebody, that sick as well? Yeah. No, no. No, they're just old. You just slow down. And then at that that time, he was like, okay, well, I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. I got to go. Yeah. So, like, but the king did not want him to be a religious man so much that he hid him from all of this stuff. So well, now he's self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling yeah, prophecy, right. I guess. But, you know, like, so after seeing the old, he had 
you well, know, he, he, death. He, well, but, but before he saw death, he already had his freak out and was like, take me back. And on the way going back to the yeah, palace, yeah, yeah. he saw death. Yes. And that was yes. the breaking point. That's right. There you go. You know, so it's like, yeah. first you freak out. And like, you can see this too, as you know, as we grow and come to understand things, there's a point where it's like, you want to run back. And then on your way to running back to the way you were, something, something hits you. That's even worse happens. than the first two things you saw. <laughs> You're like, Oh man. <laughs> um, Ouch. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so Buddha's definitely mixed up now. The his his his, ha- his having mode is undermined. Yes, but but then they see before they get yeah. back to the oh house, yeah yeah the mendicant the wandering yeah. person, yeah. this renouncer that renounced all of these having needs and just lived a life of traveling and living by the skin of his teeth basically. And he saw the the peace within his eyes. He saw and the being like, well, what is that like? How like. Yes. How does how does that exist this with all this? Of, yeah, other... cultivated wisdom, this inner peace, the sense of interconnectedness that he's seen in this guy, and he's now can see the contrast between the having mode uh, and the being Deep, mode, deeper being, and he can see the contrast between you know the sick, the old, the dead, and the mm-hmm. the, the the horrors that life naturally have for you, and this true contentment in being and you know that's the grand awakening moment seeing the contrast between the two and Mm -hmm. now you got somewhere to shoot you know it's like instead of being all you know super depressed about this and the the dying and all this stuff well what is what is he doing in this post first phase of his awakening he's very much disillusioned (laughs) yeah yeah uh this loss of illusion so there, there there is actually a gaining of potential freedom here and deeper insight and understanding it's the loss of illusions but that can be very heavy that's very destabilizing mm-hmm. to his worldview so this sense of belonging that he had in the palace is now gone he can't go back it's irreversible he's seen this it changes everything mm-hmm. and this is definitely an upgraded worldview even though it's quite unsettling initially for him and the big question is why does mm-hmm. he no longer feel this sense of belonging within the old the palace mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's probably going to continue to be answered through all 52 of these things sure yeah, yeah. and Brabeck, he gives us a little bit of a clue like what we've learned so far in our studies of the west is this insight that the moral life sits on something deeper you can't just merely be moral you must be virtuous you must cultivate wisdom and meaning meaningfulness yes is the the, the, is the cure is the deepest thing yes. that Meaning, yeah, meaning in life relates most to how meaningful it is to us. So our sense of meaning and belonging and involvement with. So yeah, certainly deeper than mere morality is is virtue, mm-hmm. um, because our existential modes can be rendered meaningless. You need something stronger than just morals that you believe in. You need to understand the why and the how to enact them, which would be the virtue, and that's the development of, of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle got us up to this point. And I think that catches us up quickly with uh, wherever Bakey's gone so far. Yeah, so uh, let's, bring, let's yeah. bring ourselves back to 1440. That was a nice little pause. Let's do that. Trying to keep everything concise for you. It's a, this is a learning experience for us in more ways than one. There we go. Okay. All right, and All right, so we're jumping back in now. Back to Verbeke. So, Siddhartha, 
leaves the palace. He cuts his hair, leaves the palace, goes into the forest. And he decides to follow the path of the renouncers and try to cultivate a solution to the fear and the turmoil that is still reverberating within him. So he pursues various, he meets up with various teachers, and he pursues various things. But he gets into, he gets into another troubled spot. Because although he leaves the palace, there's an important sense in which he hasn't left the having mode. Because he's still, he's still carrying that confusion. Because what he's pursuing is he's pursuing asceticism. He's trying to subject the body to tremendous trial and pain. Trying to bring it into com- complete submission. So he's, he's practicing self-denial. I mean, you can see why this would make sense, right? The palace was all about self-indulgence. So surely the solution is self-denial. I mean, that seems reasonable. Think about how often we do these swings between self-indulgence and self-denial. So he starves himself to the point where you can see his spine from the front of his body because his belly is so withdrawn and gaunt, it's pressing against the vertebrae of his back. He looks like some anemic specter in representations we have of him from that period. But, but it's not working. It's not working. Because do you see what's still going wrong? Do you see it? Trying to annihilate the self is still thinking about having a self. He's still in the having mode. He's just transferred it from having bodily things to trying to have his self. Yes, he's trying to throw it away, because he, but he's still framing it in the having mode. He's still understanding the problem in the having mode. He is still modally confused. Self-denial is as much an aspect of this confusion as self-indulgence, because it's merely the negation of self-indulgence. It is not its transcendence. When you negate something, you are still framing it in the same way. So he's sitting on the banks of a river and he's fatiguing. And he hears a barge going down the river and there's a musician playing and there's, the musician has his apprentice and it's a lyre, a stringed instrument of some kind and he's saying to the apprentice, no, 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 listen. Listen to me. The the strings can't be too tight and they can't be too loose. Too tight is just as bad as too loose. And think about Aristotle, right? Think about Aristotle, right, at the golden mean, which doesn't mean just the middle point in some sort of average. And I, I say that because of how this has come to be understood. This is when Siddhartha discovers the middle path. It doesn't mean some, you know, compromising, middling solution. It means a, a radical reformation. Right? The middle path is to, tra- is to transcend the having mode by rejection, 
rejecting both self-indulgence and its negation, self-denial. Right? We're going to talk about this a lot more when we talk about optimization strategies. We talked about it, remember, when we talked about flow. You're not trying to maximize, you're trying to optimize. You're trying to get the right connectedness. And see, and that's what the being mode's all about. It's about being connected in the right way. So Siddhartha has this realization. In the story, he t- he, the realization has come, he tumbles into the river and he's drowning and a little girl saves him, which is, I mean, in the culture of the time, that's extremely demeaning for a man who was once a prince to be saved by a little girl. It points to the radicalness of the change that's occurring for him. She gives him sort of the equivalent of rice pudding. That's why on Bodhi Day, uh, Buddhists will often eat rice pudding to celebrate that fact. So he realizes he must pursue the middle path. He must find a way of optimizing his cognition that allows him to transcend and rediscover this missing mode, the mode that he saw in the eyes of the mendicant. Now, this is important because this is the word for that kind of remembering, sati. It means to remember, to remind, not just like a fact. It means to, be a, it means to bring it to mind. So this is, a, this is a modal memory. This is remembering a lost mode of being. This is not remembering some fact or event. This is remembering what it is like to be in the being mode. It is to recover a mode. It is a deep kind of restructuring of your being. It doesn't mean just simply remembering or reminding yourself. It's like when you go back to a place that you haven't been for a while and you start to recover and remember an identity you used to have there. You all, while you were away from the place, you remember the facts and the event, but when you go there, ah, right, this is what it was like to be me at this time. It's that kind of remembering. It's a modal memory. right? It's, it's, it has to do with that participatory knowing we were talking about. Sitarda is trying to remember the being mode. It's in the eyes of the renouncer. Now, why do I bring this word up and go on about this? Because this is the word that is translated today by this term, mindfulness. But I bet you when I say mindfulness, especially if you're in touch with this revolution that is sweeping our culture, you probably didn't think of remembering the being mode. Now, there are some astute authors who describe it that way. Stephen Batchelor uh, did in a beautiful little book called Alone with Others that I heartily recommend. <clears throat> Siddhartha is going to pick up on these psychotechnologies of mindfulness that he's learned from his teachers, but he found inadequate because he's going to transform them 
because he precisely wants to remember. He wants to recover, it's a better word, I would think, the being mode. Not as an intellectual idea, but as his very agency and the very way in which the world is realized in conjunction and co-identification with that agency. So, I want to stop now this story. We're going to pick it up at how, what Siddhartha does in order to bring about this recovery. But I'm going to give you one way of thinking about it that we're going to build towards. Okay, we're going to break real fast before he gets too deep again here. Uh, that was a lot. Ah, uh, yes. So, Sid goes on a journey, talks to a bunch of teachers, learns a bunch of different styles, yes. bunch of different style, you know, styles of practice. Mm-hmm. Different um, practices. If I remember like correctly, it. when he got all like super emaciated and skinny, he was hanging out with the dudes that would only feed themselves of what birds would drop into their mouths when they looked up and what water would, you know, like, yeah, some real, real, They're like, hard government. not having. That the, the bug is dead. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And if only it fell off the tree. If, if the food was given yeah. to them only. So in aestheticism, there's, there's this practice of rejecting the self, this practice of self-denial. And so he was drawn to that because he was in a world of self-indulgence mm-hmm. in the palace. So, you know, it seems logical that the opposite would give you the desired effect that you're looking for because he saw this wisdom in the eyes of the renouncer on his way back Mm -hmm. to the palace prior you know just prior to his great disillusionment so he wants to find this state of being he starves himself and realizes that having a self and self-denial is just this another confusion well, ne- to the same framing. he never left the palace yeah you know, it's, the, it's the same framing of reality and you need to actually transcend that framing so he needed to deny that you're right he still hadn't fully left the palace because well, yeah, he, he, he was still trying to he was still trying to have himself mm-hmm. yes through this and you know like yes, yes so he never really left the having mode mm-hmm. um so still stuck in the palace if you will mm-hmm. um and the practicing self-denial is, like what he said, is still a way of self-indulgence. It's just as confu- much the com- same confusion mm-hmm. as self-indulgence. It's the same framing of reality. Well, and yeah. it, in like a, a way that you could uh, look at it in modern times now is everything's anti-this, anti-that, anti-that. But if you look deeper into it, it actually seems very much the same as what it is anti. You need to... So in, in the sense, negation to of it is, both of, both is of them, not trans- the anti and the four yeah. to be able to see what it's all about. Yeah, and that's the transcendence. Um, and that's transcending it to get a yeah. better frame. And the yeah, so new he, overview. So the story transcend overview. Yeah, the story was the bards on a boat and the master yelling at him. You know, it's yeah, like your strings yeah, are too barge, tight or too loose. Going by, by the river. Ba- yeah, mm-hmm. too too tight is too is bad. Too loose is bad. Yes, you know you got to find and that. Clicked. That was one of those moments. And it, this. Is tangibly familiar. This part, this this part of the story, I, I really enjoy. There's a Buddha sitting by the bank of the river. This barge is going by. The master's guiding the apprentice, telling him strings can be too tight or too loose. And then it's like ding. And yeah, that's, that's the golden mean that Aristotle, Socrates, Plato realized 
that middle path is realized through Siddhartha as the middle path, and not and not the you know. So now he's becoming not the awakened one, and not the average or mean that you would sense in like oh well directly between things or in the the Hegelian dialectic sense. You have the thesis and the antithesis, and somewhere in the middle you'll find Mm -hmm. the truth of it. Not that end of things. No, the golden mean can yeah, but the optimal in between Mm -hmm. the thing. Yes, Um, yes. And then Sid is rescued by a little girl, which in, in that period of time would be like if you're a rich man having the lowliest bum give you a dollar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very insulting. But, you know, at at this point, I don't think he was in a it's mode of being insulted. The feminine and the masculine and myth, mm-hmm. mythological form to tell us that this intuitive, well, career, you know. And she didn't give him a big, you know, a big prize, a big surprise. She gave him poor people food, which was rice yeah, pudding, like watering, rice yeah, pudding or watery she gives him. rice mm-hmm. pudding, you know. But it was like, you know, if if there are signs and you're a sign believer, that's yeah, a sign a of, of like, go ahead and eat this. It's it's okay, yeah. too. That the, the point isn't yeah, starve some yourself Yeah, he's death. not even, like, by the river, I think. You know, it's like he's in yeah. a town or something. And I've heard ones where he, like, puts the bowl of rice in the water. And if it goes upstream, then then he can eat it. And that was the enlightenment thing. They, uh-huh. put, they put that in the movie. And, and I've heard... You know, other people bring it up, but that one didn't make much sense. A little girl rescuing, though, you know. But, like, but anyways, in, the, in that yeah. moment, though, he remembers the being mode. Yeah. He remembers yeah. it. He, and what they term in, Jap- in Japanese Buddhism, sati, um, or maybe that's just Japanese language in general, it means to bring to mind. So it's not just um, remember. It's like a deeper yeah. sense of remembering. Sati. It's remembering yeah. a mode of being. Yeah. What's it like to be in... The participatory, that participatory, participatory remembering, knowing, yes, and yeah, you know. that participatory relation of knowing like what it is to like drive a car for the first time. Now you know yeah. what it is to drive. Oh, hey, hey, remember the first time knowing. you ever got on a roller coaster? Mm-hmm. And you see, you know, <laughs> yeah. sometimes so you see is, a response. He's remembered the present moment. He's remembered something deeper than all of his ideas of self that he's been trying to renounce or and suppress. And, and this inspires him to want to recover yes. the being mode. Yes. Yeah, so he's like transforming the teachings that he learned from now mm-hmm. so that he can bring this being mode ever more into realization. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I think that's, that's about it. So he starts developing mindfulness now. Yep. Yeah. This is his aha moment. Indeed. Indeed. So, all right. We're going to jump back in now here, guys. Back to John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Another way in which you remember in this sense of sati is when you wake up. Remember, we talked about this as one of the metaphors, the myths that people use for talking about self-transcendence. There's enlightenment, there's waking up, there's going from being a child to an adult. We'll We'll come back to these again and again. But why? When I wake up, this is not like when I just remembered yes, an event, when I, like right now, and I remember, oh yes, I know it's out the hall. When I wake up, I recover my world and my identity. I deeply remember. And even look at what this word means. To belong to, to be a member. I belong again to myself and to the world. That's what happens when I'm waking up. And Siddhartha wants a mindfulness psychotechnology, in fact, in fact, not just a psychotechnology, a set of psychotechnologies that are going to help him remember, recover, sati, 
the being mode. He is going to awaken. And that's, in fact, what his title means. Buddha is not a name. Buddha is a title. It means the awakened one. But we need to talk about the cognitive science of mindfulness because we are here looking at Siddhartha precisely because of the mindfulness revolution that's happening here and now today. And the mindfulness revolution is a response to the meaning crisis. And we can see why it is. Even better if we resituate it within Siddhartha's myth. Because we see that he's cultivating mindfulness to cultivate awakening because awakening is a way of responding to the meaning crisis. Hence the title of this series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. But as a cognitive scientist, I'm critical, I'm both, I'm both appreciative of all of the scientific work that's being done on mindfulness, but I'm also critical of it, as a good scientist should be. So I want to talk a little bit about how we can understand and better formulate what, it mean, what mindfulness means. And this is based on work that I published in 2016 with Leo Ferraro on mindfulness. So again, why am I doing this? If we want to awaken from the meaning crisis, if we want to understand what Siddhartha's awakening was, we've got to understand what mindfulness meant to him. And what it meant to him is precisely the set of psychotechnologies that brings about awakening. And part of what I want to show is how can we get back to an understanding of mindfulness and its constitutive psychotechnologies that will afford precisely that. How can we get a deeper understanding of the, co of the cognitive processes at work in mindfulness and how they can afford such important existential transformation? So if you ask people who are pursuing mindfulness practices, meditation, contemplative practices, I'll, I'll, I'll try and argue later why those shouldn't be treated as synonyms, for example, even though they often are, They'll give you a sort of standard understanding of what mindfulness is. And what I want you to first note is how much it is not picking up on what we've already said about sati. So people will tell you that to be mindful, what you're trying to do is pay attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental fashion. Trying to learn how to and notice there's a, there's, there's a hint. Look, there's this, there's this. There's this hint of the being mode, remembering the being mode still there, because they'll say it's about being present. They're invoking right, the being mode, but they're doing it in a way that, while helpful, is maybe misleading. Now, I want to I make sure that you're understanding what I'm criticizing, what I'm not criticizing. In order to do that, let me tell you a little bit more. I both study mindfulness scientifically and do work on it, experiments and publish theoretical work on it. I also teach. I teach it, as I mentioned. I teach meditative practices, I teach contemplative practices, and I teach extracurricular Tai Chi Chuan, which is a form of moving mindfulness. So I am familiar with both the academic attempt to explain mindfulness and the pedagogical attempt to teach it. 
And I think it, it's important to have a foot in both of those worlds to realize a way in which you can become confused in your attempts to understand mindfulness. We need to avoid confusion by making a distinction. We avoid mortal confusion by recovering the distinction between the having mode and the being mode. We can get deeply confused about mindfulness if we do not remember the distinction between the language of training and the language of explaining. This is the language I use when I'm teaching people meditation and contemplation and Tai Chi. I use language that helps them acquire the skills. And this is language of imitation and involvement. And I can depend on our presence together. I can depend on the pragmatics of the situation. I can depend on the fact that their goal is that they want to acquire the skill. And so I'll use language there that's appropriate for that. But if I was simply to use that language unquestioningly here, I would make a mistake. Let me give you an example, and I'm going to use an example from memory because of the connections I'm making between mindfulness and memory. One of the most powerful ways you can train your memory is to use what's known as the method of location, or the method of loci, if you want to sound uh, more pretentious. Okay, so... Some of you might have watched the Sherlock series. Sherlock does this with his mind palace, right? So what you do is you memorize the space. You memorize the rooms, right? So you can visualize them in your mind. And then what, if I want, to, I want to remember a bunch of things, let's say I want to remember stuff associated with Socrates, then I have a figure of Socrates here, I, and then I put a bunch of other images there in that location, and then I, now I want to remember some stuff about Plato, and I have some other things here, some other images, and I put a bunch of images started with Plato, and so forth. And then what I do in order to remember what I need to remember, I call this up, I go into this room, and I have all the images, and they're all tightly associated together, and I get all the information I need from Socrates, and then I go, and then I move in my mind palace to where Plato, the, the Plato room is, and I unfold it, and this is powerful. The orators of the ancient world could use the method of locations, right, to, in order to memorize speeches that would last up to six hours. And we know that this is a very powerful mnemonic. You should, if you're a student and you're studying, learn how to use this. It's not just how to become uh, a sociopathic uh, superhero detective. It is a good way to become a student, the method of locations. Now, notice this. It is powerful language of training. It trains your memory well. Now, what you may do, and this would be a mistake, is you may think this is how memory is organized. This is called the spatial metaphor of memory. You may think, oh, well, this is how memory is organized. All, the, all my memories, for one thing, are, 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 are sort of stable things, like my image of Socrates. They're in a stable location, and all the things that, right, right, that are associated in my memory are actually closer together in my memory. So the way memory works is I send in a little homunculus, a little memory guy, so, right, and he searches through the rooms until he finds the right room, and then he goes in the room, and everything's organized there, and he finds what he needs, and then he brings it out, and then he passes it up to consciousness. Oh, and that's how I remember. 
right? And we talk about searching through our memory and retrieving from our memory. Here's the thing, and Isaac and Keane pointed out this a long time ago. The spatial metaphor for memory is almost completely wrong. Your memory does not work this way. It doesn't work this way. That's a mistake. Here, I'll show you. Right? <clears throat> so, tell me quickly, other colors associated with blue. You'll say red, green. Tell me other words that rhyme with blue. Uh, shoe, new. Okay, so red is close to blue and shoe is close to blue. Yes? So that means what else is close? Shoe and red. So when I say shoe, you should think of red. Do you? Of course you don't. Here's another way in which your memory isn't laid out this way. You rapidly know when you don't know something. What's, right? What's Meryl Streep's phone number? I don't know. Have you ever been in Bangkok? No. Well, what, what, what did Bob do? Did he get on like some sort of hyperspace motorcycle inside your, like, what did he, did he go to every place you've ever been? Is that Bangkok? Is that Bangkok? Is that Bangkok? No. He instantly knows, you instantly know, that you weren't in Bangkok. He instantly knows that you don't have Meryl Streep's phone number. All right, we're back. We're back. I like this uh, this line. When I wake up, I recover my world, and I remember. Mm, and the yeah. Remember. And the sense of identity you have, yeah. a, their membership with that world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so sati also being akin to waking up, mm -hmm. as the language is used. So remembering to re-belong. I like that when he breaks down the word remember to re become a member of the world as your fittedness to some particular phenomena is better actuated better described better realized yeah and uh i have a point here but meaningfulness revolution is a response to the meaning crisis Yes. This what we're going through right now. This meaningfulness revolution is a direct response to this meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. Or, well, the Siddhartha story is good because I guess the story of the singular person going through this, then maximized into all of us going through this now. Mm -hmm. You know, we're seeing the sick, the old, the dead, mm -hmm. and then we are, are seeing brilliant people who have that calm behind them and mm. are like what is that and and you know the meaning crisis isn't just a brand new thing either but you know like if you look in american you know history we had you know the the era of rock and rollers would bring the yogis in and they would sure. do all that stuff and you know the yoga movement that we had you know oh yeah the meaning know. crisis has been building for, a, yeah. for some time now yeah. since the scientific revolution it yeah. seems when there was that great schism that occurred between science and spirituality and they begin to separate themselves from one another mm -hmm. and compete over 
you know, what, how old the world was and other actual kind of brass fact kind of measurements that science could win on. And that was maybe a mistake that part of the church made in trying to compete with scientism in that way. Because it's not about what the world is made of or how exactly it's how do you find meaning old it, it is. It's about how to live, how to be yeah. in the world. Yeah, it's it's about developing wisdom. Well, and you can kind of see too the becoming lot, more selfless, lot, well, the, loving. Well, it's in the pop the population um, and people. We lost a lot of our moral anchoring or mm-hmm. framework. Sure. Yeah. As we were losing our sense of meaning mm-hmm. and try as we might clutching at all these different ideas, it wasn't enough. And now I think we're at the point right now is like, well, I don't need to be a rock star and have my own personal guru that follows me around. I don't need to go to the cool yoga club and, and do that whole thing because that doesn't give me any meaning. Things like this right. sitting here, and there's more of us that are going through that. Yeah, no, still, still go do yoga. It's it's good for you, and if you get right, the chance yeah. to talk to We're a guru, talking. talk to a guru. But it's 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 the being end of it, not having end of it. Like, did you yes. talk with a guru, or do you have a guru? Right. Well, you're you're not doing it to be cool. You're not yeah. doing it to fit so in. You're it seems like now, out of necessity, for self growth, we really are in mass striving for meaning and kind of getting a little bit more accurate of a grasp than generations before. And that's net the natural progression though. It's like, you know, like each of these great teachers gets a little bit more of a grasp than the last yes. great teachers they're, too. They're so all building not, upon like, one, coming down one another, on right? The the previous generations are no, it's not just taking us this long yeah. as taking this many minds stacked well, we had, up we had back to, to back to back building off the one that came before to get us to this point of understanding. And we had to do a, a fair amount of disassembling things to figure out how how things work. right yeah um we we are curious by nature and rebellious and sometimes you have to break something before you can figure out how it works because then you have to fix it and in order to fix it you kind of have to know how it works why not to break it (laughs) yeah why not to break it it Uh, what does it it, look like when you're breaking it (laughs) deeply embedded memories for our species yeah and they need to be to some extent we got to have these memories and so that's, that's where myths come in they tell us the stories of when yeah. civilizations crashed before us and why that why it happened. So yeah, Sid wants a set of tech psychotechnologies to recover sati, this awakened sense of being to awaken the being mode. So the mindfulness revolution, a response to the meaning crisis to cultivate an awakening from the meaning crisis right. is what people are being naturally called to. That is really interesting. Yes, we've all seen this happening. So, what is mindfulness? A set of psychotechnologies that brings us into awakening to help us recover, avoid modal confusion, by allowing us to better recognize the distinctions, the differences between having modes and being modes, and the thoughts as they arise, the urges as they arise, to be more aware of things happening in the mind rather than pulled around by the mind. And to be mindful is to pay attention to the present without judgment. And mm. Christian Murti mm. talked about this a lot. Um, his you know best metaphor that I remember, or best for me metaphor that I remember the most, is being in the train, and that state of being when you're looking out at the mountains passing by right before you say that is beautiful. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, that's the true paying attention. And you, you know, you spoke about like you know the kid, uh, you know, who wasn't paying attention in class because the teacher's up there, pay attention, pay attention, but the kid's really looking at that bug out mm-hmm. the window. And Christian Deep Murphy's thing would be like, well, Deep understanding and comprehension. Notice is his eyes, notice his yeah. wings, notice his legs, notice mm-hmm. this instead of pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Yes, and that's that, that's a great example. That's a teaching of the opposed to explanation. Yes, yeah, of of describing uh, the language of explaining versus the language of yeah. training. Because you know, pay attention to my explanation of this bug, or like notice the legs on this bug. Let's zoom in a little bit. Um. So we've gotten a little bit into mnemonics and that memorization. What was it called? Well, but, a palace? Memory palace? Yeah, the memory palace. Before we get into that, though, um, the modal confusion of explanation versus teaching or language versus training or being versus having. Mm-hmm. And like the explanation versus teaching um, modal confusion that a lot of us grew up with in school was having things explained at us opposed to taught to us. So the teacher was Mm -hmm. in a modal confusion within what their mode should be. We were being told what to memorize and regurgitate for a grade. So how well can you just memorize this set of facts? But we weren't being taught how to think. Or explaining you how the problem works or explaining this instead of teaching you how to work the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't work very well for me. I didn't learn a lot of like you know advanced math or anything until I got into the real world and had to teach myself because it's useful for you know if I want to plot the arc of this with this and that and the other like there's math for that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was never never really taught to me that, like that in school. Um, but yeah, so the modal confusion yeah, not in a fun interactive way like learning geometry while in shop class. Yeah, you know yeah, that's a great that's yeah. a great idea. That's a great way to yeah, do it. Why not know? start it out that way? Bring bring the two together. So yeah, the and then to get, I, I guess, like to go past the modal confusion is to be able to differentiate between these two different modes. Right. And so, like, uh, you know, mindfulness and memory is another bimodal thing that leads us into the the method of location, and we go into you know, like. You can compartmentalize ideas into your mind, mm-hmm. into areas, and remember vast amounts of information like that. So the idea was in the past that certain ideas and, and concepts were close together in your memory, which isn't the case, like you said, you know, with like blue. And then, okay, well, what are other colors that relate to blue? Well, red, green, whatever. Well, what rhymes with blue? And there's this game I yeah, um, shoo, who? I, I played with this girl at the bar, and I, I a friend of mine that uh, just baffled the crap out of her. It's this like free association game where somebody you know says a word and then another person says another word that relates in some way or another. And I'm a weirdo. So like, she'd be like, shoe. And I'll be like, hell. And because I think shoes are manufactured by Satan um, to facilitate the wearing of socks, which socks, which are uh, directly <laughs> of hell. Uh, but you know so like but those ideas aren't super close together like the shoe and hell like well where's the closeness so mm-hmm. that concept of memory working like you know as things are next to each other is, is not really the case even though we can use a technique that memorize things that is that like way. that that's not actually what's happening with the brain you instantly know when you don't know something yeah yes yeah well yeah it's like so we're going to understand now how it actually works. And it's not, it's, I can't remember that. It's like, no, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Like, how tall am I? Well, you know you don't know. Like, I'm sitting down, I, you know, like, 
Right. Yeah. Uh, you just automatically don't. I know, know how tall yeah. I am. Uh, but, or um, let's see. Uh, what's it like faster than light? I don't know. Can't know. Now, there's a difference between. But you automatically know you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Or opposed to like, oh, where did I put my keys? Well, you, well, you would know because you, you can see them. But like, you guys wouldn't know where I put. Whoa! Where I put my keys? Why that just fell down. That's okay. We'll fi- fix it on break. You know, everything, know. everything's held together with duct tape around here. Um. Oh no! <laughs> hey, what do they call well, that, the but, third but wall? before that, you didn't even know that those things were held up with duct tape. Uh, yeah, but uh, that's all right. This so is, that's that's pretty much where we stepped. Uh, this is what happens when you left off. We should take a break. I can fix that. Get water. Do all that stuff, and then we'll kind of rehash where we're at because there wasn't. Technically, the best stopping point, even though uh, it is a no, stopping we'll, point. No, we'll give him a quick he, rewind he, before we start. The last up. bits of all this kind of string all together, to, all together yeah. too. So there will be breaks that are a little funny, but just because you know, it's yeah, we'll, we'll see. Maybe we'll let, it, let him go a little bit here, and uh, yeah. So if you guys want to grab yourself a drink, grab yourself a smoke, have a bathroom break, we're gonna be back in five. All right, all right, we're back. So we're just going to jump right back into it here. I pulled it back a little bit for us. Yeah, before we left, we we're just uh, talking about uh, how the mind remembers, and, remembers immediately and that, knows what it doesn't know. Yeah, and how things aren't next to each other in your mind, even though you can use that as a good mnemonic to keep track of things. Yes. That's roughly where we're at. Yeah. That's it. Here we go. You instantly know that you weren't in Bangkok. He instantly knows that you don't have Meryl Streep's phone number. He doesn't search all the space. In fact, it looks like he doesn't search it at all. Okay. Memory is a lot more mysterious, and it does not operate in the simplistic manner that the spatial metaphor says. That spatial metaphor is great for training your language, for training your memory. It is great for training your memory. But it is overly simplistic and gets you to misunderstand, listen to my language, how memory actually works. The language by which we train mindfulness should not be imported critically into our scientific attempts to explain it and understand it. Paying attention to the present moment. First of all, I have to know what it is to pay attention. I'm going to show you that that's way more problematic than you think it, because you're probably thinking it's operating according to another metaphor, shining a spotlight. I pay attention the way I shine a spotlight. What's the present moment? I mean, when, we're t- when I'm training you, yeah, the, we can sort of just make it happen because we can rely on the content. But what's the present moment? Is it right here, right now? That, that's, that nanosecond? This second? The last five minutes? The last hour? What's the present moment? See, the word present doesn't have a particular meaning. It's, an, it's called an indexical. It's relative to what I'm concerned. What's here? What's now? You see, and people think, oh, well, I can tell you what being the present moment is. It's paying attention to the here and now. That's useless. What's here? 
This spot I'm standing on, this room, this city of Toronto, this solar system, this universe out of all of the universes in the multiverse, what's now? See, you're not explaining anything. That language helps train people, but it's overly simplistic and misleading when we're trying to understand. What we need to do is reformulate mindfulness, and we need to do it in order to recover what Siddhartha was talking about. How can we understand mindfulness such that it can tell us how people can become awakened? That's what we need. That's how we have to reformulate mindfulness. So let's try and do that. Let's, and let's make use of some of the things we've already built upon here. We can, we, can, we can bring in Plato to help us. And what a great ally that is to have. Because do you remember what Plato pointed out? That our knowledge is not captured just by a list of features. Remember the bird isn't just the wings, the feather, the beak. It's also the structural, functional organization. The thing is, if you look at most people's definition of mindfulness, even in scientific articles, all they give you is a feature list. To be mindful is being present, which we've got to do something about because that's just language of training. It's not explanatory language, right? Not judging. And then that's going to be problematic. What do you mean not judging? I'm supposed to pay attention to my breath and not pay attention to my distractions. That's a kind of judging. What do you mean not judging? Well, right. What does it mean? It's somehow supposed to bring about right, something like insight. And that's going to be important because insight, I'm going to argue, is on a continuum with awakening. I'll tell you, I'll explain what that means. And it's supposed to reduce your reactivity. You're supposed to become more equanimous, more balanced. So, you know, mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment, right? Being present, paying attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental fashion that's supposed to bring about insight. The form of meditation I teach, the Buddhist form, it's claimed it goes back to Siddhartha, it's called Vipassana. Vipassana means insight. Obviously not just an intellectual insight, but an existential insight. Right? It's supposed to reduce reactivity. What does that mean? Now that's a feature list. We're missing the IDOS. We're missing the structural functional organization that tells me how all of those things actually go together. So this is what we need to do. We need to turn this feature list into a feature schema. We need to recover its missing structural functional organization. And we need, right, we need to reinterpret all of these things so we can actually explain their functionality. And we need to do that by tying them to independently, right, independently constructed theory theoretical claims within psychology. Look, we have people who are doing the psychology and the cognitive science of attention, of insight, of improved self-regulation. Let's pay attention, no pun intended, 
to what they're telling us about how insight, attention, self-control operate. So one of the things you do to turn, to, to, to turn a feature list into a feature schema is you make some distinctions between the types of features. So here's, of these core four that we keep seeing a lot being present, not judging or non-judging, right, insight, right, and reduced reactivity. I've split them up like this because there's a distinction here. These are states that I can get into, right? These are things I, these are things I can do. So being present is something I, I can do. I can start it. I can stop it. We're going to have to come back to what it means. But we know it's an activity you're engaging in because it's constantly being disrupted while you're meditating and you're constantly having to engage in it again. And the same thing with not judging. Not judging is something you're doing. It's a weird kind of paradoxical not doing. But again, you can start it, it can stop, you can restart it again. But these, these are not things you're doing. These are results. So to use the language of psychology, these are states you can get into, but these are traits that you cultivate. You want to become more insightful. You want to become less reactive. So immediately we understand, oh wait, so these are things I do and these are traits that I'm supposed to be realized when I'm cultivating mindfulness. Now questions immediately emerge. By making this distinction, I can ask this question. How does being present cause insight? Or how does being present reduce reactivity? Why do, do, does non-judging cause insight? Does non-judging cause reduced reactivity? What's the causal relation? Notice that the feature list doesn't talk about this at all. It doesn't talk about how the features are causally related. It doesn't talk about how the states can cause the traits. But it also doesn't ask constitutive questions. Constitutive questions are part-whole relationships. What's, what's this? Is this a part of this? Is this a part of this? Are they both part of some whole? What's that? What's the structural relationship here? What about these? Is this part of this? Is this part of this? Are they both part of some whole? See, the feature list does not have the IDOS. And by not having the IDOS, or not looking for the IDOS, it's not asking any of these questions, these causal and constitutive questions. Now, as we start to answer these questions, and as we start to answer them with the language of explaining rather than the language of explaining, we will turn a feature list into a feature schema. We will start to get at the structural functional organization of mindfulness, and we'll start to get a deeper understanding of it. And that will, that will help us to see how it is that mindfulness can bring about the kind of radical transformations that were promised by Siddhartha's realization. All right. So I'm going to focus on this one right now.
All right, this is a good place to stop before we get into this next little bit. I want to bring this up on the big screen. Yeah. Boom. All right. Where are these so we're getting into the language of training versus the language of explaining a little bit deeper now. Um, let me see here. How to reformate, reformulate mindfulness beyond this list of traits and list of states and then the list of gained traits that we get from that. How do we understand the part-whole relationships between these? Do they relate? They seem to. Being present does seem to result in reduced reactivity. Being present does seem to result in deeper insight. But we don't have an eidos. We don't have a structural, functional organization and understanding of how these parts fit together. To be able to have something that we can explicate to broader numbers of people in a way that more effectively increases this process of awakening. Yeah, and so most people, when we say mindfulness, we define it by a feature list, you know, mm -hmm. like being present, yeah, being not judging, present, not judging, paying attention, um, insight. Mm -hmm. which the insight continuum I, I like that as, yeah on, is as, on a continuum though yeah, insight is on a continuum so with what does insight exactly so mean as you awaken you gain insight and as you gain mm -hmm. insight you awaken which reduces your reactivity to well pretty much anything that you could think of as like you know well you negative or positive but mm -hmm. you know that calmness that mm -hmm. non-reactiveness yes generated yeah. by this continuum mm -hmm. so a more balanced mode of reactivity uh so reducing reactivity but we don't know what that means being present um that's just the language of training to say be present what yeah. does it, well, that it's exactly missing mean? The that's why so you'll notice that teachers of meditation are constantly re recapitulating reframing restating things sometimes using different words for months on end back and forth trying out different ways mm -hmm. taste this moment they're like they're just doing everything they can to like beat around this bush so you can get an idea of what they're actually pointing you to turn your insight into, which is literally like sometimes they'll even say, turn your insight in upon itself. Be aware of your awareness. Yeah, but that only Things gets like you that. so far. You know, It doesn't have the structural, well, it's functional. It's, it's, it, it's helpful if the student is dedicated, I guess you could say, and continually practices it. Because then they'll get what the teacher is actually saying. Yeah, because like Vervega says, this language can be misleading. It can mm -hmm. be helpful, but it can also be misleading. Because it's not actually that. But Nothing when, I can say is the thing. Like when, when somebody says, you know, like, you know, turn your vision inward. Well, what's the structural function of that? Like, what is, well, like, what's what happening is that? Psychologically, what is happening in the brain? Verbeke wants to understand well, this as a cognitive scientist yeah, as well. Yeah, that's what we're really, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get into here. Because, uh, you know, it's... How does, how does this actually operate so that we can help people? Yeah, because it's easy yeah. enough to say it's just and like, you know, ourselves. oh, just, you know, be at one with life and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, what? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. 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 It sounds how? a lot easier said than done and a little mm -hmm. bit fanciful when you first hear that. But the, I guess the one way to do it is instead of, you know, creating feature lists, we'd create a or feature schema, a scheme yeah. of how these features work together. So we turn that list into a schema. By distinguishing and uh, making a distinction between the different types of features and his mm -hmm. distinction in this case are 
the doing traits and the result in the result states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now we have a you know a good distinction between these two things. So we can delve into it yeah, and more find deeply. the meat, mm-hmm. the golden mean between them. Mm-hmm. You know the the traits and the states. Okay, mm-hmm. what traits do you need to have and exhibit in order to get into certain states? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, this seems that enables us to be the most psychologically healthy human beings we can be individually and in mass sure. mass and and continue to and hopefully <laughs> and hopefully do it in a way that'll stick for generations and help the next generations out it's like that's the goal like really it's like if you're just doing this for yourself and and just the now having needing end of things you're missing the plot the plot is is this is for yes, humanity yeah, Buddha ran into that wall this, this this is for humanity this is for people who don't exist yet as well as those who do exist mm-hmm. you know important work for one and all yep. yeah it is you know and that's being in concert with where we're at as a living species on a living planet soaring through vast infinite space at, at, at phenomenal speeds what we get to make the meaning that makes our lives meaningful and we can co-create with reality with this world with one another and we can supercharge that process and get into this reciprocal dance where we're constantly being informed positively and we're informing life positively we're giving back with grace and we're creating a bountiful future for those that come after us yeah and then we feel very comfortable happy joyous we can live freely Hmm. and we know that we're taking care of those that come after us so things are good you're not in a state of modal confusion at that point it's almost you're you're actually being a steward of a planet of a living planet it's almost like the work is the reward Mm -hmm. the work itself the doing it is the reward it It is you know it's like if we do this right we won't see the greatest results that could come from it. We won't be around. It's just no. that hap- like, you know, Plato's not around now and what he did affected so many people throughout time. But mm-hmm. the work it's like when I say the work itself is the It lives on through us though for generations after. Yeah. And we get to be a part of it. Well and, and it's we're very... actually a part during very much a crux, very much uh well, culmination point, climax of the story. And it's well, it's very deeply satisfying to you know, pursue meaning. Mm-hmm. And to see us rediscover it as we are right now together and informed by all of these ancient mystery schools and great world religions mm-hmm. and all of the scientific achievement and human realization of the past up to this point. It's, it's really incredible because now we're all plugged into one another and we can share this stuff fast and things that you'd have to go to some esoteric, uh, you know, unknown library to find, you can find anywhere immediately uh-huh. on the internet now so it's it's really mind-blowing to be alive right now yeah you know i mean yeah. j- just ever since we had that first picture of the earth from the moon that was like a, a reframing of the entire planet's worldview everyone that saw that picture one of the most widely viewed pictures on the planet yeah we all got a little bit of that overview effect that astronauts experience well, we whole definitely, body we definitely got a real good feeling of how tiny we actually are in this mm-hmm. little blue marble yeah. hurtling through space and yeah. how in a certain level of how precious it is right um yeah for sure 
Well, let's jump back into it, guys. I think. Uh, back into John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This is part eight, the Buddha and mindfulness. And again, we'll start by talking about specific insights, but obviously we're not talking about this insight or that insight. We're talking about a fundamental existential modal kind of transformation. Okay, I've already said this language is useless. People say, okay, well, what I meant was something like concentration. That's, that, 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 that can't be right. That's, that's not good enough. Because if you take a look at Siddhartha's attempt to explain it, he talks about right concentration. That's why I have concentration here. Right? If Siddhartha is telling you that there's right concentration, what does that strongly mean? That there is wrong concentration. Mindfulness isn't about concentration, it's about getting the right kind of concentration. What does that mean? Well, oh, it means paying attention. Okay. Right? Again, you're using a particular model for attention. Let's talk about these two things a little bit, and let's talk about, right, let's talk about what Siddhartha and when he's hearing not too tight, not too loose for the strings. First of all, let's work our way up phenomenologically. I want you to compare two ways of concentrating. This is based on work done by Ellen Langer, who wrote probably the first book on mindfulness in the West called Mindfulness in like 1988, way before the mindfulness revolution took off. And there's a lot of questions about what's the relationship between her account of mindfulness and the Buddhist. I'm not getting into that right now because that's not what I'm trying to establish. I'm just using her way of trying to get you to understand concentration. Okay, so we're going to do it right here, right now. Okay, so I want you to concentrate on my finger. Concentrate on it. Concentrate. Concentrate. Concentrate on my finger. Concentrate. Don't let your mind wander. Concentrate. Okay, so most of you found that unpleasant. Um, and because notice what the metaphor even says. This is what I'm doing. I'm concentrating. I'm making my mind into a tunnel. And then I'm sort of sticking it on something, and trying to keep it there, not let it move, right? And the only training you were given was what I was doing, yelling, concentrate, concentrate. Okay, let's do it, let's do it, let's do something else. Okay, ready? Okay, I want you to look at my finger. I want you to notice that it's not actually perfectly straight. It's bent a little bit, and it's a little bit thicker at the bottom than at the top, and there are sort of multiple sections to it, and it's a little bit red on one's, it's very different, wasn't it? She calls that soft vigilance. Because what you're doing there is not uh, externally hardening your mind and sticking it on things. What you're doing is constantly trying to renew your interest. <clears throat> and this is a great word. This comes from, right, inter-esse, to be within something. To be within something. It's about that conformity that Aristotle was talking about. What you're doing is constantly exploring and opening it up. Right? So we need a model of concentration that does this soft vigilance, that's constantly renewing your interest, getting you deeply involved with something, because it's going to get you intimately in contact with it. 
So, what kind of attention are we talking about? And, right, we don't want too hard. Those are the strings too hard. Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Strings are too hard, too tight. Oh, just do whatever you want. That's too loose. How can we, look, notice how when I got, had you sort of move over my finger, it's almost like a well-tuned string. It's almost got this musicality of intelligibility to it. Well, now you need to know, understand what's going on with attention. Because what I want to show you is attention isn't a spotlight. It's a, it's a very complex optimization process. It's really about tuning and getting between too tight and too loose and allow you to becoming intimately involved, conformed to, participating, inter-essay with, with whatever you're paying attention to. Okay, so why do we like the spotlight metaphor? It's even in, in you'll, you'll find it in psychology textbooks. Attention is like a spotlight. <laughs> well, because one of the things that attention does is captured very well by the spotlight metaphor. Look, when I shine a light on something, it makes that stand out. It makes it stand out because it's brighter. Remember when things stand out, that's salient? It makes things more salient. That's what attention does. It makes things more salient. Attention is about, right, now we're getting something. And that's what I was doing here. I was making things salient to you. Features of my finger more salient to you. What's wrong with the spotlight? Well, what's wrong, what's wrong with the spotlight metaphor is, well, it picks up on that attention is about optimizing salience. It's missing so much of what that optimization actually is and how it can be connected to insight. So, some excellent work done by Christopher Mole. Again, very complex argument, and I'm not going to try and go through the whole thing. But try to get into an understanding that attention isn't something you directly do. Let me, let me try and give you a comparison here. Walk and practice. See, walking is something I can ask you to directly do. I can say, walk, and you walk. Start walking. Stop walking. Start walking again. Great. But if I say to you, practice, come on, practice, you should say to me, practice what? See, you practice something by optimizing how you're doing something else. If I'm practicing chess, I'm not playing chess and doing some other thing, practicing. To practice chess is to optimize how I play chess. To practice tennis is not to do tennis and some additional secret action practicing. What I'm doing when I'm practicing tennis is optimizing how I play tennis. Now, Mole's point is you don't directly pay attention. But it's not obvious to you that that's the case because of both the prevalence of the metaphor and how skilled you are at paying attention. But this is how you pay attention. You pay attention by optimizing some other process. That's why when I ask you to pay attention, I can be asking you to do many different things. I can ask you to pay attention, and it means 
optimize your seeing so that it becomes looking and watching. I can ask you to pay attention and it means optimize your hearing so that it becomes listening. I can ask you to pay attention and that means doing the two together. Optimizing your looking and your listening and so that they're coordinated well together. But notice if I say to you, I want you to pay attention, but I don't want you to do that by optimizing or improving anything else you're doing. I don't want you to pay attention by improving your looking or your listening or your remembering. I just want you to directly pay attention. Come on, do it right now. Pay attention. You don't know what to do. See, you pay attention by optimizing other things you're doing. Now, Mole talks about this as cognitive unison. What, what, when we're optimizing, what we're trying to do is coordinate various processes so that they're sharing the same goal and working well together. Think about Plato's idea about getting various different systems to work well together. So what we need to understand is, what is attention? What's it, how is it optimizing? How is it integrating things together? How does that get improved in mindfulness practice, and how does it bring about insight? Not just an insight into this problem or this problem, but the insight, the systematic insight that is awakening, that motivates and empowers people to radically transform themselves so that they can escape from modal confusion and other existential dilemmas. We'll take a look at that next time. Thank you very much for your time. birds this week we got cats don't play don't play don't do it ah stop no okay whatever reality is shh who is that daniel donald hoffman daniel daniel <laughs> daniel the hoffman reality is an illusion interesting oh that's yeah great great uh lex friedman podcast I'm not sure how good that episode is, but the podcast itself and Lex Friedman, it's pretty great. I like him. So the right kind of concentration and what does that mean? Yes. Yes, this is super helpful because we've used so many different forms of language and ways within those languages to try and express this. And it's such a tough thing to explain. But Verveke's long experience as a con cognitive scientist, which is a multidisciplinary science. Um, his psychological, uh, neuro neurological background, plus his philosophical background, plus his 30 years of practice and then teaching as well of these practices is, given, is allowing him to help us explicate this further than we've been able to clearly, um, along with the cutting edge science on the leading edge of understanding consciousness so this is really helping boost humanity at this point um what he's going to be doing in, in the following episodes here that he's setting us up for now and he said in the first episode that you know it might seem kind of what was the word that he used like brash or or something like something almost inappropriate for him to like assume to take on a subject mm -hmm. like this 
Um, but, you know, humbly, he's going to do his very best at trying to help us awaken from the meaning crisis, best describe what it is and how we can proceed forth. So, so yeah, it's all about, it's all about tuning. Yeah. So tuned. I, knew I, wore this, I, I, I wore like this shirt for a reason today. I like the the example that you got of like concentrate on my finger, concentrate, yes. concentrate, concentrate. Telling, You're telling, just like, oh, telling. that sucks. Training versus but, actually um, explaining. Well, concentrate on my finger. Look at it. Notice it how it's kind well, of stubby down at yeah, the bottom see how it's and curved. And, yeah, and, you know, the, see the shade of of like pinkishness that it is. And well, that's what I was talking about nail. when I was talking about Krishnamurti and his uh, the child and the bug. That's mm-hmm. what exactly what he was talking that's about. That's a perfect of explanation. Concentrate that, yeah. on this. It was like, well, okay, well, notice this and notice that and notice mm-hmm. that. And what's the term? Soft vigilance? Yes, because teaching to... someone how to pay attention is very difficult. You can't just say pay attention, so we needed to explicate that further. So what what were you just about so, to uh, say? Soft there? vigilance. Yes, soft That's vigilance, the, yes. Which is an intimate contact with it. Yeah, you know, soft it's... vigilance. I love that. So a soft vigilance sense of attention rather than just like that spotlight metaphor. This takes it a little bit further because it's allowing you to renew interest as you're distracted or your mind wanders so you keep on refreshing you know you're looking at the texture of the wings you're looking at the texture and the, the different legs and the color of the bug and all of that instead of just pay attention to the bug so this is more than just focus so the right concentration versus wrong concentration right mm-hmm. because you can say just pay pay attention but that's yeah, that's not always good advice. So how do we delineate between the two? This is where our wisdom comes in, not too light, not too loose, like the tuning yeah. of the instrument, that soft vigilance. It's like attentiveness versus attention. Just pay attention. Now be attentive. That's a more caring orientation. You're going to be more involved in the process now. And concentration is tuning. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> quite yeah. quite literally. Tuning in. Tuning in, in yeah. tuning out. Mm-hmm. and. Until you find that golden mean, you know, that perfect spot. And it's not... Getting into an inter-essay, an inter-relating description of what you're attending to. So it's informing you, you're informing it, that Mm inter-essay. That makes it interesting to you. That's really cool. Yeah. And the attention isn't a directly done thing like, you know, walk. Right. Walk this way, you know. it's, It's not something that you can just, you know, well... Pay attention. Walk this well, it's way. Like, well, talk this way. How do I pay attention? Walking is easy. Paying attention is much like um, practicing. Yeah, versus pra- walking. Practicing, which is optimi- optimizing factor. Mm-hmm. And optimizing you, processes, things that work and, together. And, and with practice, when you tell somebody to practice, you can't just tell them to practice. It's what what are you practicing? Mm-hmm. Like you know, practice mm-hmm. like. Um, Practice your scales. Practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, practice your long jump. Practice your yeah, your d- dynamics or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, practice is to optimize processes, and then the idea of cognitive unison is when we can bring these various elements that involve whatever practice we're you know playing chess mm-hmm. or playing guitar, what have you, to work well together. So how does that get us to improve? and develop insight and mindfulness practice is what we're going to be understanding in the forthcoming episodes of the series. Yeah, Yeah. guys. So I don't know if we have a long ramble. I know I don't have it in me. I got a bad tooth. No, we did a lot of good stuff this time. We don't have a bunch to go over at this point. Um, 
I, I like that it's given me a better handle on these mindfulness practices I've been studying for, you know, some time now. Um, this this really helps deepen those neurological grooves, and it's helping to gain, I, I guess, a more well-defined understanding that is easier to embody because it's not blurry. It's not as blurry. And it, it really drills down here with us, too. It's, it's fun. I, I really like where this goes from here. I'm excited for these forthcoming episodes. Mm-hmm. How did it make you feel? Um, well, that one's hard to explain because right now my tooth is just killing say, me. So I'm, I'm, if you haven't noticed, right I'm like, yeah, I'm sweating, um, I'm hurting. You're, you're a trooper. And also the ibuprofen's wearing off, so i got to go take some more. <laughs> yeah, man. That's why. But I feel, you know, I feel like I have more control, not maybe necessarily over external factors in my life, but how how I respond to them and what I make of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit more understanding of how I make reasoning for mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. A so more I space can, I can, and I can check, I can check in on is my reasoning making mechanisms in this moment sound or not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. A little th- bit more room to respond yeah. to things rather than just immediately feel pulled to react yeah. and then looking back and be like, ah, oh. uh, conversation skills are getting a little bit easier too, believe it or not. Uh, by thinking hey. about all these things. Well, you know, like yeah, ultimately yeah, I conversate to, to communicate it it's helping me to have somebody to learn this with i've watched these videos before uh like i mentioned earlier on um and i made it towards the end but i never quite finished it because i had to keep going back and restarting it to make sure i was keeping track of all the terms that he was using because i would forget something and i'm up into like episode 11 or whatever and i'm like what does he mean by (laughs) structural functional organization when did we go over that where where, where (laughs) was that so I, i would go back through it and i'm actually gaining a better understanding now than I ever could have alone being able to share this with you. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this. And thank you all all of you guys for joining us on this. Uh, Continue to uh, look forward to us on Wednesday nights around 8 P EST. We'll be doing this thing and feel free to look up John Verbeke's awakening from the meaning crisis series on YouTube for yourself. It's also in podcast form so you can Google it and you can listen to it or watch it. Um, at whatever speed you like, and you can catch up with us pretty quickly, I'm sure. Uh, but if you find this interesting, definitely check out the previous episodes because it's it's really cool how he starts this back with the axial revolution mm-hmm. in Greece, and now we're moving over to the axial revolution in the East and in India, and to see these things come back together to create who we are today is really exciting. Yay! Yeah. So... Love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Actual Eye. I've been DJ. I've been Chris. Love you guys. See you next time.